This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, If we've not met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us worshiping today. And uh, we are on the second week of a series working through the book of Nehemiah. So it's an Old Testament book, and we're going to be spending uh, quite a bit of time in it. We'll probably be in it till about Easter, and uh, we're on, uh, we'll take a break for Christmas. But we're on chapter 2 now, so if you would grab your Bible or your device and turn to Nehemiah 2. If you don't have one, uh, then you can reach under the seat in front of you and uh, grab a Bible out, and you can track with this. If you turn to page 226, uh, you'll be able to track along Uh, with us this morning and read the passage and see what it's about. Okay, last week um, we met this guy named Nehemiah. Uh, He's a Jew, but he lives, uh, basically he's in in the palace at this point of the Persian king who's named Artaxerxes. And uh, what what has happened is the people of Israel have been in exile. The century before, uh, the people were in exile. Babylon came in, they, because of God's judgment on his people who had turned from him, uh, they tore down the temple, tore down the, tore, destroyed the city, uh, carted a bunch of the people off, and uh, this was called, they lived uh, in Babylon, it's called the exile. Now this is several uh, rulers later, because it happened in the previous century, uh, and now uh, Persia rules over them, and this is the king uh, Artaxerxes that we met last week, because Nehemiah is his cupbearer, which we're going to get into today. Uh, into Today. So in Nehemiah 1, this is what we found out. Some people came to Nehemiah, and uh, they were from Israel, and they reported this, verse 3 of chapter 1. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so he begins to weep. He begins to pray. He begins to fast. He goes without food. He's so desperate for God for the, because of this situation. And he prays uh, just uh, for God to give him a chance to talk to the king about this. And he prays for four months And then we pick up in chapter 2 at the beginning. This is after Nehemiah has received the news about the walls uh, and and the gates which have been broken uh, because this king, numbers of years earlier, had stopped the building of those gates. So because it's a fairly long chapter, I'm going to read in chunks and then talk about it, then read another chunk and talk about it, and then uh, help apply it. So let's uh, start with reading verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2. This is God's word to us. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? 
So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, uh, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your good hand would be upon us as we open your word today, that we might know your favor. Please speak to us. Please help us to see how you are the God who restores. Help us to see most of all Christ, the Savior, who restores through his death and resurrection. I pray that you would grant me grace, fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word faithfully to the dear folks gathered here today. Help us all hear you and not only be hearers, but be doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. That last verse, now we're going to look at the rest of the chapter, but that last verse of that section is indeed powerful, isn't it? He says, the good hand of my God was upon me. And I really want to trace that throughout this chapter and see what does it mean that the good hand of God was on him. So the first section, this first section, this is God's hand stirs the king. God's hand stirs the king. Next, we'll see that God's hand stirs his enemies, and last, God's hand stirs his people. But first of all, God's hand stirs the king. Now, Nehemiah serves as a cupbearer to the king. That's a foreign occupation. Uh, it's basically you get paid to, to drink wine daily is kind of the job. And uh, so what you do as cupbearer is you drink all the wine before the king drinks it. That's Nehemiah's role. So that... If someone is trying to poison the king, which happened a couple of kings before this guy, if someone is trying to poison the king, you get poisoned instead. And so you die in sparing the king's life. So it's kind of like the secret service, right? You're ready to take a bullet for the king at any moment. And that's Nehemiah, who's a trusted guy. Now, he's a Jew. He's not Persian, but he is a trusted guy. This is a significant role that you're there with the king all the time, protecting him, drinking his drink, and eating his food uh, so that he is spared. Now it says, verse 2, the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. So the king recognizes that Nehemiah is very sad, And we know why he's very sad. We just read it in chapter 1. He's very sad because his people... Uh, have, uh, are living in a city where the walls are destroyed. And he's very sad. And Nehemiah, and the king knows, this is not because you're sick. This is a sadness of the heart. You're depressed. You're blue. Why are you sad? Why is this such a big deal that he says he's afraid of this question? Because no one was allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. No one could be sad in the presence of the king. What greater honor is there than to serve the king? What greater joy than to be with him? So you must be smiling because you get to be with the king. This is why my wife is always smiling. Right now she's smiling. Just, no, she's just joking. <laughs> she's just joking. Uh, so 
you can't be sad in the king's presence. Now, we think that's strange, right? Come on. You can't, there's no authenticity, no reality. You've got to be happy all the time. That is very familiar to us. If you're in any kind of service industry, like if you, serve, if you work on a wait staff, you have the same responsibility. You go to a table, you, you, just like this, you, you have to, whether you feel it or not, you have to be pleasant. You can't walk up to a table to serve people at a restaurant like, oh, oh, what do you want? I mean, you can't do that. I want a new waiter. That's what I want. Someone who's a little happy. Uh, so we get it. If you're in a service industry, the same thing is true. You have to be pleasant. And so they recognize that he's not, the king recognizes he's not pleasant, and, and he is scared when the king recognizes it. Why? Because if you're on the wait staff and you're sad, it could cost you a tip. If you're serving the king and you're sad, it could cost you your life. I mean, kings are not elected. This is a dictator who can do whatever he wants. Kings in these days would regularly have people hung or killed, so by some, some means killed, uh, executed. So he could be executed. He could be banished. He could be imprisoned. So he's very afraid. And, and so he has this great response. Don't you love it? He's got a great response in verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Yeah. And me too. Let the king live forever. He's instantly, hey, king, I, I'm, I'm all about you. You know, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm on the king's side. I'm not sad because necessarily of you. And, and then he, he makes one of the most fearless statements in all the Bible. This is one of the most gutsy statements in Scripture. He says, let the king live forever, verse 3. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, why is that so gutsy? Well, he's saying, this is why I'm sad. My city lies in ruins. The gutsy part is what is not said, but is known by everyone present. The gutsy part is the elephant in the room. It's in essence saying, why should I not be sad? My city's in ruins, and it could have been rebuilt because we were rebuilding the walls, but you, king, Artaxerxes, in Ezra chapter 4, the book before, you forbid them from building the walls. You cause them to stop. That's what's not being said, but that's what's true. It's your policy that ultimately has resulted in the tremendous sadness that I am experiencing today. That's gutsy. That is gutsy. But he's been praying for this moment. And so verse 5, um, uh, verse 4, Then the king said, what are you requesting? So now the king's saying, what, are you, what is this about? What are you trying? Are you asking for something? What is it that you want? Now, if a movie's ever made about Nehemiah's life, this moment, and I don't know if one has been. I'm sure there's a Veggie Tales. But at this moment, at this moment, uh, there could not be enough dramatic music, enough cam- you know, dramatic camera angle, shooting it just right, moving. This is the moment. Because in the next 60 seconds, it'll be determined whether Nehemiah lives or dies, is banished, stays present, whether he gets what he requests. Everything is on the line right here. And so what does he do? I said to the king, um, no, before that, look in verse 4, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He fires up a quick one. 
I mean, this is a good biblical example of firing up a quick one. He prayed for four months, but right now, he's just, this is, this is just like a, an, what they call an arrow prayer. He's just shooting it out there, oh, God, help me. This is mental. He's, he didn't break for prayer, didn't bow down. He just, he's in his head, oh, God, help me. It's a great prayer. He's just this quick prayer. And then this is what he says to the king. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He got it out. That's his request. And the king said to him, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. This is miraculous. This is a cupbearer. This is a, a trusted position, but a throwaway position, a guy who could die any day on the job. But, but this is a foreigner who comes to the king sad. The king says, what do you want? The queen is there with him, which we don't know why that detail is given. Maybe it softened him up a little bit. I don't know. But the queen is there with him, and he says this, I want to return to the city. The walls that you forbid from being rebuilt, I want to rebuild those walls. I want to go to a, a city that's under, ultimately under your rule, and I want to go fortify it. I want to build the walls up so that it would be protected against any future invader. That's what I want to do. How long is that going to take? He tells him, okay. Amazing. He gets to go and return to build this city, but he doesn't stop. See, once you've got the miracles flowing, just keep going. Once It's a big ask. Just continue to ask because Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So God has turned the king's heart towards him. The hand of my God was with me, he says. So he thinks he'll go for more. And this is what he says. Verse 7, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. He's saying, give me authorization. I not only want your permission, I want your authorization. I want your power. I want you to endorse this project. I want you to tell the governors, don't mess with me because the king said I can come and do this. Because as soon as he comes to build the city, to build the walls, what's going to happen? The governors around him, the people around him who cry out for the wall to be shut down the first time, they're going to all say, what are you doing? And they're going to jump all over. So he says, I want authority. I want you to give me authority that says I'm okay. And verse 8, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. So also, I want you to let me go. I want you to let me fortify a city under your reign. I want you to give me authorization in case anybody gives me trouble, and I want you to pay for it. I want you to go to give me a letter to the guy who runs the forest of the king and tell him, give me all the timber I want for the mount around the temple, for the walls around the city, for the gates. Oh, yeah, and for my house. He's feeling bold now. I don't know how much wine he sampled, but he's feeling very bold now. By the way, I want a house out of this deal. Some people think maybe he was going to be kind of given an official role, like a governor of, of the area. But whatever, he says, I'm building a house, and I want you to pay for it with your wood. 
And that's not even all. He also gets a security detail. Now, it doesn't tell us this right here, but in verse, if you look down in verse 9, it says, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and a horseman and horsemen. So he, he's, he gets, we don't know if he asked, presumably he asked for that. So he gets the officers of the army, the king's soldiers, to go with him, to protect him, to ultimately show up and say, he has a right to build a fortified city with walls that would make it difficult for us to get in. We are authorizing that. That can happen, yes. So he gets a, a, a mobile security detail. And his explanation is, verse 8, the good hand of my God was upon me. That's the only explanation for a guy that sips wine to protect the king, getting freed from that job, getting to go rebuild and fortify a city, getting it paid for, getting a house, getting a security detail of officers that travel with him to protect him in case anybody questions this is authorized by the king. How does that happen? This guy's a sad, this all happens because a, a cupbearer is sad. <laughs> because a cupbearer is a little blue and everything turns. Because God's hand is at work. And while it may not be the primary point of this passage, it is worth every one of us noting that when God's hand is moving to restore his people or to restore something in your life, nothing will stop him. He will turn a king, he will pay an exor- he will provide an exorbitant amount of resources, he will provide protection. If you are facing something today where you need God to renew and restore and revive something in your life, nothing and no one can stop him. That's really encouraging. Some of you are here today and you are desperate for God to restore your marriage. And the truth of God is that God can turn your spouse's heart. God can turn your heart. Some of you are, you, are, you are crying out for God to restore a relationship with your kid, to restore a relationship with your parent. God, God can call the wayward home in a moment. God can turn your dad's heart, your mom's heart, like that. God can erase years I mean, it was, uh, uh, I forget the exact math. I can't do it in my head. 130, 140 years or whatever since the Babylonian captivity, since they've been taken into exile. But God is faithful. He can turn more than a a century of things around in a moment. He, He can restore your health in a moment or in a process. God can rescue you from the trials you're facing with your finances, with your job, with your school, with your future. Whatever it is that weighs you down that's seemingly impossible. When we look at a story like this, we say God can do the impossible because no one can stop God's hands. And even almost comical circumstances like this, when a sad cupbearer leads to the rebuilding of the city of God against all odds. And what happens is that when God moves like that, we step back and we don't say, look what I did. 
but we look back and we say, the good hand of my God was upon me. That's a sweet verse because God is active all around you today. God is working all around you in ways that you do not see. God is orchestrating circumstances in your life. God is coordinating uh, certain situations. God is, uh, is guiding and directing people that will affect your life. And though he is working invisibly, the invisible hand of God is moving all the time around us. It is sweet when it becomes visible like this. And noticing the hand of God is with us, turning an impossible situation to a reality. Secondly, God's hand stirs his opponents, verse 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sanballat, we're going to hear more about, I love that name by the way. If I hadn't, we're done having kids, but that would be on the list if we were having more. Sanballat. So Sanballat is, uh, we're going to find out later, a rule, a governor in Samaria. Okay? Tobiah, uh, the Ammonite, uh, is from Ammon, or he could be, it says he's a servant. He could be uh, a servant to Sanballat. We don't exactly know right here. And we're going to meet a third guy. If you go down uh, to verse 19, it says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem... The Arab heard of it. They jeered and despised us, etc. So there's also a guy who rules an area of Arabia named Geshem. So these are powerful men. They are governors over areas, um, areas surrounding. Powerful men that resist them. We'll meet them later, especially in chapter 4. So I'm not going to talk about them much now. I just want to make this point. When God starts restoring, when his hand is moving and he starts restoring a life or he starts restoring a people, there will be opposition. You can count on it. There will be opposition. Why? Because it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. When somebody seeks the welfare of the believer, when someone seeks the welfare of the church, when someone seeks the benefit of others and seeks to act, to to work uh, with Christ, someone will resist. God's hand stirs his opponents. I'm not saying he put resistance in their heart, but because he worked, they resisted. Number three, God's hand stirs his people. Let's read verses 11 through 20. This is the meat of the chapter and in, in what happens once he gets to Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. 
how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, and we may no longer suffer, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their heads, their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Okay, what happens here? Well, he arrives, and uh, he arrives, and after three days, he starts his reconnaissance. He starts going around at night and inspecting the walls. He's assessing the circumstances. He's looking at the damage, and he does it at night because he doesn't want the, uh, those who oppose him. He doesn't want his enemies uh, intervening. Because if they know what he's doing, then they might be able to get to the people and threaten them or try to cause fear or something like that. They may be able to hinder the project. And so he doesn't say anything to anyone about what he is doing. He he secretly goes around at night. It says in verse 16, he says that I I didn't say anything to the, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So he kept it from them. Everyone was going to be involved in the work. Verse 17, and then I said to them. And Nehemiah provides an absolutely brilliant leadership model here. Because what he does is he takes a people who are despised and probably despondent. People who, uh, who are uh, somewhat hopeless, who have no momentum no vision, and he moves them to a place where they're saying, we're in, let's build the wall. And he does it in these verses. He takes people without any momentum, and he gives them tremendous momentum, and he does it by three ways. And this is something that that spiritual leaders can do uh, to provide leadership. I suppose not only spiritual leaders, I think it's a leadership principle that probably generally, at least the first two are generally helpful. The third, you'd have to be a believer to, to do number three here. But number one is he shows them the need And then he shows them what could be. And then he shows them the hand of God at work. The hand of God at work. He shows them the need. Often the first step of leadership is shining the spotlight on the current reality. Nehemiah is is looking at the reality. He assesses it. He knows the situation of the walls. He knows what's going to be required to build them. And he, he doesn't shy away from that. He doesn't tell the people like, hey, there's no problems. Everything's great. He doesn't deny reality when everything's terrible. He's not tweeting out, it's great, the city is wonderful, we have no problems. He doesn't do anything like that. He shows them the need. Look what he says. Verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. Folks, we are in trouble, he says. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates are burned. He assesses the needs. He describes the problem. He says that we are in trouble. The people are vulnerable because the city is not protected. In fact, later in the book, if you look over in chapter 7, we find this little detail. Chapter 7, verse 4. The city, 7-4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. 
and no houses had been rebuilt. The majority of the people don't even live in the city. They live on the outside. They're not even inhabiting it. And he, because partially because of its vulnerability, I suppose, and it hasn't been rebuilt. And so he, he is saying that we are not in good shape. Until the walls are rebuilt and protected, at least against raiders and such, nobody's going to live there. But the people had been forbidden from rebuilding. They're vulnerable. Chapter 1 says they're in shame. Because every time they look at the destroyed walls, what does it remind them of? Of their sins, their sins of their fathers who had not served God but had turned to idols and so judgment had come. So it's not a good situation. J.I. Packer says the best way to understand the people of Jerusalem at this point is to think of modern day refugees. Think of modern refugees. And he says this would be a very similar picture. They're people with no security or future. Modern-day refugees are people with no security, no future. They're tremendously vulnerable. He says they are victims of other people's power struggles. So modern-day refugees often are refugees because of no doing of their own, but because there has been some battle of powers, and they end up being the collateral damage, left, insecure, and vulnerable. So that's exactly what's going on here. These people, it was generations ago, the sins that had caused the exile. And it was the Babylonians who really aren't even on the scene right here. They're not even mentioned here. But the Babylonians that had taken Israel into exile. So this was the battle. It was another battle. They lived in another day with someone else's problems. But they were paying for it. No security, no future. Then he shows what could be. Look what he says to them. Not only what is, but what could be. Verse 17, come, let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. Here's what he's saying. We are a laughing stock. The people around us don't see us as a threat. They see us as a joke. It looks like God has forsaken us. He promised that we would be, the New Testament language would be, a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. That we would be the representation of God on the earth. That we would shine the glory of God to the nations. That's who we're supposed to be. And yet we lie in shame. We lie in ruins. But what could be? Let's build together. Why? So that the glory of God would be on display again. So that people would see the city of Jerusalem, Zion, where God reigns from his holy temple on earth. Let's build so that once again that we could be the people God called us to be. We could be the people that God had fulfilled his promises to. We would be the people that would shine before the nations. Let's rise up and build. Let's represent God is what he's saying. What could be? God could restore us and restore his glory so to us. So come on, let's build. And then he shows them the hand of God. He shows them their need. He shows them what could be. We don't have to be a derision. We don't have to be a lacking, laughing stock. Verse 18, I told them about the hand of my God that had been upon me. Also the words of the king who had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. He said, God's already on the move. You may not know this, but God is acting. The king sent me. The king authorized me. The king is paying for this. The king protected me. 
God is moving. I was nothing but a cupbearer, but God has led me into all of this. We have wood from the king's forest to build. And when they hear this, verse 18, they say on their own, let us rise up and build. We see it. We see how decimated the circumstance is, but we see what could be, that we don't have to be a people of derision, and we see that God is at work as you told us. And so we want to rise up and build. They receive opposition, but in verse 20, but Nehemiah just responds, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants. We will arise and build, but you have no claim on this. In other words, we are authorized by an earthly king to do this, but we're ultimately authorized by God Almighty to do what he is calling us to do. Nehemiah's story is extraordinary because what's going to happen next in the next chapter is all these folks are going to start building. Someone with no building experience whatsoever, Nehemiah among them. They're going to start building. And it's extraordinary that this man, Nehemiah, what he has done to make this happen. Nehemiah lived in the palace. Nehemiah lived in the security of the palace with the king. Nehemiah lived in relative safety. He lived in luxury. He lived in the most prestigious address there was. He lived with the king of Persia, but he was willing to give all of that up, give all of that up because his people were in need. He was willing to give all that up for the glory of God, that the city might be restored to God's glory, to fulfill God's promises to his people. So he leaves the environment of royalty to a life of opposition and hard labor. He, he leaves royalty to go risk his life. His life is going to be threatened as he builds. As a matter of fact, they're going to have to build with, like a, with, a, with a weapon in one hand and a trowel in the other. That's what we're going to see as we go through here. They have to build and be on alert at all times. So he risks everything, including his life, leaves the safety of royalty, the royal environment, because his people are in need and because he desires God's glory. And Nehemiah's story reminds us of the one who is greater than Nehemiah. All of the Old Testament, Jesus says in the book of Luke, tells us of Christ. All of the Old Testament tells us of Christ. And Old Testament leaders, deliverers, restorers like Nehemiah are types of Christ. They point to him in some way. And doesn't Nehemiah's story tell us the story of Jesus? You see, Jesus leaves the presence of his father. Why? To, to rescue his people for the glory of his father and because his people are in need. We don't just have broken down walls. We are living in utter darkness. We are dead in our sins. We are blinded, and he leaves it all. He takes an, an infinite step down. He doesn't just come as a visitor. He is God Almighty who lays aside the prerogatives of his rule, leaves the, the presence of the Father, and comes to labor among his people. He leaves the security of heaven and comes to the danger of earth. He doesn't risk possible death like Nehemiah. He comes for certain death. The very reason he comes so that he may restore us that we may live for his glory. And so when we read this story, we don't just have the model of Nehemiah, the great leader, though we have that. 
we don't just have the historical narrative that tells us of God's hand with his people, though we have that. We have Jesus with us, God with us, Emmanuel. We have his spirit living inside us. We have been rescued so that we would not be a people of derision, lying in ruins, but that we would be a people restored ultimately in his glory, but in these days progressively restored so that even in our weakness and suffering he shines through. Do you see this, that God is doing a restoring work as well? It's not about walls and gates and a temple. The temple is the people of God, and Jesus is the restorer, and he is calling dead people to life. He is calling prodigals home. He is calling his people to himself as he builds a people that will represent him to the world, that will shine his glory to the world, that will tell his message that he's died, that he's risen, that he's reigning, that he's poured out his spirit, and will not only tell it, but will live it, for his spirit is renewing and restoring us for this very purpose. See, Nehemiah, when he speaks to the people there, he holds out what can be, and it's great, we could be a city no longer under derision, we could have our walls built. He holds that out for them. He, he holds out the assurance that God's at work. Listen to what happened. I'm a cupbearer. The king let me come here. The king protected me. The king paid for all that. That's great. He shows them what could be. He shows them God's hand at work. But do you realize we have something far greater? What could be for us? We could be a city set on a hill, the people of God, representing God in the earth, looking like Christ, loving people, serving others, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That's what we could be. And what's the promise God's hand is at work? Oh, it's not an earthly king and a cupbearer. It's an empty tomb and a risen Savior and Jesus giving us his spirit to live for his glory. I want you to imagine with me what could be in the church today. What could be among God's people with Jesus at work, the risen Savior? Imagine a people filled with God's power. Imagine a people living for God's glory. When you look around at the evangelical church, it very much might look like a city of ruins. It certainly is a people under derision, oftentimes. But imagine what could be a church filled with God's power where dead people are coming to life, where new life is invading arts and turning people around, where the power of God is on display, where addiction does not win, but Jesus does, where people are set free from the slavery that entangles them. Slavery which sucks the life out of them, slavery which dominates and commands them, the slavery of substance abuse, slavery to pornography, slavery to overeating and overspending, slavery to the kingdom of self, pride and self-interest, living for my own name and my own reputation. It's slavery. And Jesus comes to free us from that. What if people in the church really started getting free? Not just in heaven, that's coming, but today progressively tasted freedom. What would that be like in the world? What would it be like if the church was filled with those who loved other people who are different than 
themselves. That's the mark of the gospel. Do you know in the New Testament, the primary testimony of the gospel is that Jew and Gentile are together. Do we know anything about that? What if the church really lived out its calling what it could be as a multiracial family unified as one in Jesus? What if the church really was a place where rich and poor could relate together? Where someone in the lowest rung of society sits in the pew next to a CEO and they both have Christ in common? What if this happened, and this is almost unthinkable in the polarized climate that we currently live in, what if the church could be a place where the political liberal, political progressive, and the political conservative came together and bowed the knee before one king, Jesus, and pledged allegiance to one kingdom, the kingdom of God, and then made that the central, the gospel, the central point of gathering? that crosses the aisle, that crosses lines. If you have more alliance with unbelievers in your political party than you do Christians of a different party, that is wrong. We are united in Jesus. What if we really lived with him as our priority and with his kingdom as our priority? What if the church really was a place where marriages were restored, where 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 increasingly husbands began to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And increasingly, wives began to honor their husbands as the church does Christ. That's Ephesians 5. What if the church became a place where parents loved their children and raised them not for idols and for their own dreams and goals and their own personal self-fulfillment, their own earthly success, but raised them to know Christ? And what if children grew up And what if children and young adults began to live lives swimming upstream against a culture which says live for today and instead lived for eternity? What if the church was a place where young people fearlessly followed Christ? What if the church was a place where the orphan and the widow and every vulnerable, marginalized person in society found a home where they were not only cared for but honored? What if the marginalized became the very ones that were honored? That's the church. See, it doesn't have to be the way it is. It could be different. And what Nehemiah does is he says the kingdom could be different. The walls could be built. And he says God is already at work. And he says to us today, the church could be different. The evangelical church is a laughingstock in so many places, just like the city of Israel the city of Jerusalem. But it could be different. Why? Not because a king's building a city, but because the risen Jesus is changing lives. What if the church not only looked like Jesus when we gather, but looked like Jesus when we scattered? What if we scattered this week to our jobs and we worked with integrity and diligence as if we were working for Christ and not a human authority? What if we took our craft so seriously And what if we took others and our service to them, we raised that to such a level of importance that we stood out as different, not motivated by greed, but motivated by the glory of God? What if people worked like that and made a meaningful contribution to the world 
How might things be different in our culture? What if people scattered, what if the church scattered during the week and took on this novel concept and loved their neighbor? What if they loved their neighbor that was different from them? What if they loved their neighbor whose lifestyle was different? What if they loved their neighbor whose belief system were different? What if they loved their neighbor whose values were different? What if they actually befriended different people? What if the church was scattered into the world and befriended members of the LGBT community? What if the church scattered into the world and befriended people who had a different belief system? What if Christians had Hindu friends? What if Christians had uh, friends who bought into sort of a new age spirituality? What if we had friends that were Muslim? I read a a study uh, a couple weeks ago that said one in seven American, I'm sorry, let me say that again, seven in ten American evangelicals have never had a single meaningful conversation with a Muslim. 70% 70% of Christians have, in America have never had one meaningful conversation with a Muslim. Is there any wonder there's fear? Because, because there, we're called to love our neighbor, but you can't love your neighbor you fear, and you can't love your neighbor that you don't know. What if we befriended atheists? What if we befriended people who thought very differently than we did. What if we befriended people of different ethnicities, different genders, different ages? A restored church is made up of people who scatter into the world with open arms, who scatter into the world with open hearts, who scatter into the world with love and hospitality. This whole line of thinking came to me when I read this quote by J.I. Packer. He says that the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah is very much like the evangelical church in the West. Now, in parts of the world, Africa, parts of Asia, parts of Latin America, the church is exploding. But in the modern West, he says, the church, evangelical church, knows weakness, disillusionment, and the melting away of adherence. He said that just as the church, just as the city lies in ruins in many ways with broken down walls, so does the church. But I believe God comes to us today and says, you know, look at what could be. No longer a city of derision, but a people for God's glory. And he motivates us just as Nehemiah motivated the people by showing us God's hand at work. And God's hand is at work today. Not building walls, but bringing life where there is death by giving new hearts and new purpose and new life. The walls may be broken down, but Jesus is alive and Jesus is risen and Jesus is ascended and Jesus rules over all and he has given us his spirit so that things in your life do not have to stay the way they are. And things in my life do not have to stay the way they are. And things at Grace Church do not have to stay the way they are. Or in our city, or in our nation, or in our world. The church can be restored, renewed, revived, empowered by the Spirit for God's glory. And so with the people 
of Israel who hear those words from Nehemiah, may we hear the better word, the better message, the gospel message, that he's not just building a city, he's building a people, and he is with us. And may we respond just as they in this chapter. May we, with their words in verse 18 of chapter 2, may we also say, let us rise up and build. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and many of our lives are characterized by all kinds of brokenness. All kinds of brokenness. Many of our families, in many ways our church and churches around us and the church in our country. Lord, in many ways we have vulnerabilities, we have weaknesses. And and God, we just pray that you would restore. Lord, we, we thank you that you're not just restoring walls and gates. That you're not just building houses, but you're restoring lives and you're building your church, and you're moving among us for your glory. You're taking dead people and making them alive. You're not taking bad people and making them good. You're taking dead people and making them alive. You're changing our motives. You're changing our desires. And we say, Lord, would you come and do that even more? God, would you give us a vision for what could be in our lives? What could be in our community? What could be if the church caught fire and began to love began to abandon ourselves to the love of the gospel, began to act like Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you ate and drank and lived among those who acted and believed different. Lord, thank you. We pray that you give us the grace to do the same. Help us to love one another. Help us to love those who don't know you. Help us to love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.